All right. Well, good morning once again. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church, and so glad that you're joining us, especially if you're visiting or uh, just exploring Christianity. Really glad that you're here. Hope that you feel encouraged and helped in your walk with Christ and your journey towards Him. Well, let me begin with a question. Uh, it's a detention grabber. How are you feeling about our president? How are you feeling about our president these days? What's, what, what's, uh, how's the president impacting your outlook right now? Now, let me be clear. Um, I, uh, I'm really, really thankful that in our church, we have people from a wide perspective of political affiliation and ideology and all that, from left to right and everything in the middle. And we gather together as a church family based not on uh, seeing things the same way when it comes to politics, but because we understand and believe that Jesus is our Savior. And that Jesus is the one who unifies us and brings us together and, and, and helps bridge the gap across all different distinctions and all that. And that's one of the things that I just love about our church family. It's a great thing. We'll, we'll never endorse a candidate. We'll never talk bad about a candidate because we're, it's not, that's not what we're about. But having said that, when you evaluate how you're personally doing, how are you feeling lately about our president? How, how is our president affecting your outlook on life? Because here's what I've found to be true, is that based on who is in power, and now this can be power of a political party, the political, a political seat of power, or this could be like your boss, right? Or, or any person that, that has some kind of authority over you. What I have found to be true is that depending on who's in power and how much you like them or align with them or feel good about them, it really can change how much hope you have. If you really like who's in power, then it's easy to have a lot of hope. And if you really dislike who's in power, then it's really easy to feel a real lack of hope and to kind of see everything through that lens and like things are just bad and, you know, I don't know if they're going to get better. I'm going to have to wait a, lot, a long time before they ever get better and you kind of lose hope. Here's the thing. I think that it's very easy and it's very common for us to give too much power to those in power over how much hope we have. That we let the people in power have too much power over how much hope we have. And, and here's, here's what's interesting, is that um, today we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts. We're going to look at Acts chapter 12. And in this chapter, it seems like the author of Acts, the, uh, Luke, who wrote Acts, he kind of goes out of his way to address how we, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, we can have hope no matter who's in power, that our hope isn't tied to the people in power, boss, political authority, whether good, lots of hope, or little hope. It just doesn't have to be tied to that because of what he teaches and shows us about God in this chapter. So if you will, turn to Acts chapter 12, and we're going to pick up in uh, verse 1, and we're going to look at this. Now, I said real quick, as you turn there and kind of get the, let me give you a little bit of context because this is really interesting. I, I, you know, I said that Luke kind of goes out of his way to address this. The reason I say he goes out of his way is because if you've been following us in the, in the book of Acts, you've seen that oh, what, what happens at the very beginning when God kind of gives birth to the church, 
Acts chapter 1 and 2, and Jesus says that here's the mission of the church. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to be empowered to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And though that is a true, absolute statement that applies to all believers, that this is God's intent for the church to be his, his sent ones on mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And also that verse, Acts 1-8, serves as an outline for the book of Acts. You read through Acts, you've been studying, you see things play out that way. And so chapters 1 through 7 is all about how the church was empowered by the Spirit to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. And then Acts 8 and 9, the gospel, it goes from out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And then in Acts 10 and 11, we've seen the last two weeks, that the gospel even spills out beyond that into the Gentile world leading to the ends of the earth as Justin just taught last week, even going as far up to, as to Antioch, which is modern-day modern southern Turkey. And so, like, the, the gospel is spreading from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so that's the flow of the first part of the book of Acts. And yet, here's Acts 12. And it sits right in the middle of Acts 11, the, church go, the gospel going to Antioch, and Acts 13, where from Antioch, The missionary journeys begin, and the gospel goes even further to the ends of the earth. But here, in Acts 12, it's like Luke calls, or the Spirit of God through Luke, inspired by, calls time out. And says, hey, no, 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 let's take a break in the action, and let's go back to Jerusalem to make a point, to help the church see who's really in power. Because see, Luke Luke knew, God knew, that the church then just says, the church now has to understand who is truly in power. And so he kind of wrestles that home in this chapter. So Luke chapter 12, verse 1, is where I want to pick up and just address the question, who's truly in power? Look how he draws it out. Starting in verse 1, it says, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this, met, this, uh, that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by the four squads of four soldiers each. And Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. All right, so... Uh, let me pause here and just point out, like, this, this is bad, all right? Like, if you were uh, one of the uh, first century believers in Acts, and you're, you're living this, and you have the, the king of that area of the Roman Empire, King Herod, overseeing this, this portion of the Roman Empire, and he decides he's going to start persecuting Christians. Like, if, you're, if your hope is tied to the person in power, you would have no hope because he begins to uh, go after the church, arresting them and putting like James to death, killing him by the sword, which is a way to say having him beheaded. Now, this is a big deal. Like James, so just think about this for those who don't know. Like this is James, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. This is James, an apostle who saw the risen Lord. This is James, who it was the inner circle of disciples, So Jesus had his 12, but then he had three that he spent a lot of time with, Peter, James, and John. This is that James. 
This is James, who's brothers with John. Jesus was referred to as the, the sons of thunder. And uh, I guess they had like a strong personality or something like that. But, and, and, and John is the guy who wrote you know, the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. Like this is his brother. This is James. This is a big deal. King Herod has him arrested, has him beheaded. And then, as it says, when, when Herod saw that that was met with approval from the Jews in the city, he says, well, man, I'm going to arrest Peter. So this is Peter. Like, you know, Peter, James, and John. Now we got James dead, Peter in jail, about to be beheaded. Like, things are bad. Now, what do you do? What do you do if this is what's happening? Um, now, let me, let me just make a real quick side item topic here. Uh, I think this is so fascinating. But like, if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, don't, don't rush over the fact that James died for his faith. Okay? This, is, this is James who saw the risen Christ and then he's beheaded because of Jesus. And it's true that people often will die for things they believe are true. That happens. I mean, that happens a lot. People die for things they believe are true. But it, here's what doesn't happen. People don't die for what they absolutely know is not true. And, and James saw Jesus live and die. And if he didn't see Jesus rise again, he wouldn't have allowed himself to be beheaded. But he saw the risen Christ. And so he died for not just something he believed was true, but for something he saw with his own eyes and therefore knew it was true. So that, that's... Just, I think that's worth noting. But he, one of the apostles, killed by Herod, killed by the person in power. Um, and we're told that he's doing this, King Herod was doing this, because he's trying to win approval from the Jews. For many of the Jews in Jerusalem were still radically opposed to the church. And they were growing even more opposed to the church because, one, one the church believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah to the nation of Israel. And the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, so that made them upset. But then they got even more upset with what took place in Acts 10 and 11. And that is that uh, the, the, the church began to believe not only that Jesus had come for Israel, but also to recognize that he'd come for the whole world. And so they had taken the good news of the gospel not just to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. And now they're thinking, now the Jews in Jerusalem are thinking, man, this is, that just, I'm, I've had it. You can't say that Jesus is Messiah and believe that the Messiah came not just for the Jews, but for everyone. And so they're irate, and King Herod's catching wind of how upset they are. And so he comes in, and he starts persecuting Christians, and then he's, his approval ratings start to go up. And he says, okay, as a vain guy who's about wanting people to approve of him, motivated by his uh, desire for approval, he then begins to continue or, or, or escalate the persecution of Christians. And again, okay, get the stage. You get the feeling of these. Things are bad. Got that? Things are not good. But what happens next in this chapter is that Luke tries to highlight who's really in power. Who's really in power and why we can have hope because of what he points us to. So verse 5, he says this. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. 
And the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Now, let me pause real quick and just, like, Luke is going out of his way here, again, to to explain that that Herod is doing all that he can to make sure that Peter does not escape. So back in uh, verse 4, we're told that uh, Peter was in prison and that Herod had assigned four squads of soldiers to guard him. The squad was made up of four soldiers each, so 16 soldiers, probably working a six-hour shift, four, four guarding him at all times, two in the cell. Peter's chained to those two and then two outside the door to make sure that this guy doesn't escape. But look what happens. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared. And a light shone in, the, shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. And wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And the, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that, this, that what the angel was doing was really happening he thought he was seeing a vision. I, I love that. Like he's, this is the night, like he's going to die. He's going to be beheaded the next, the next day. And so what do you dream about the night before you're going to be beheaded? I would think you dream about escaping prison. And so like he's having this dream and he's thinking, man, okay, this is a good dream. I'm getting out of here. But he's certain this is a vision. But verse 10, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And it opened for them by itself. Like this is the first automatic opening door, sliding door right there. And they go through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Friends, who's truly in power? Who's truly in power? Despite Herod's extra efforts to guard Peter, the angel of the Lord appears, and there's a miraculous escape, highlighting that no chain, no power, no authority, nothing in all of Herod's resources can keep God, who has real power, from doing what God wants to do. For God is the king of kings. That's what Luke is trying to draw out here. God is the one who's truly in power. But if you're thinking, you might say, okay, well, then what about James, right? Like, James just was killed. He was martyred. Like, like is God, like, who's truly in power? But he only had, like, one get-out-of-jail-free card, and so he waited to play that on Peter and not on James. I mean, what's, what's the deal? And like, No, I mean, God certainly had the power to free James just like he had the power to free Peter. So you think, okay, well, then, why in the world did he not free James? And to be honest with you, I'd say, I don't know. I don't know for sure. Here's, here's what I do know from Scripture. God makes really clear. God is, ex, God is extremely committed to the advancement of the gospel. The gospel being the good news that Jesus died for our sins, though we did not deserve it, but he died and he rose again to make a way for us to be reconciled to God and restored in a relationship with him. That God is completely committed to having the gospel message go out and go out in power. That's what, that's what I know. And I, I know this too. I know that uh, in all history will tell us that, that nothing helps the gospel go out in power like prayer and persecution does. 
In fact, even uh, Paul in his letter to Philippians that he wrote from, from a jail cell, he, he said this in Philippians 1 verse 14. He said, most of the brethren have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. That Paul was saying, okay, here's the thing. I know I'm in prison, but what the result of that is called those who are not in prison to be even more bold about sharing the gospel. You think, well, why is that? Well, it's the same thing, I think, with what happens with James. When you see someone worthy, someone that, is, that says it's worth suffering for the, our, for the message of the gospel, it helps others say, okay, the gospel's worth suffering for. And when you see someone who says, okay, it's, 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 uh, Jesus is worth dying for, then you know he's worth living for. And when you see someone who says, okay, this life is not all there is to live for, that there's another life to come, then it gives you a great hope and an eternal perspective that leads you to be bolder now instead of living for trivial pursuits. And so this persecution that James suffered I, I don't know how. I, don't, I want to try to figure it all out, but I, I can say from what I do know about what God says in Scripture is that there was tied to James's persecution. God, what God wanted to have happen wasn't uh, opposed. It wasn't like God wasn't kept from doing what he wanted to do. In fact, what he wanted to do in getting the gospel to go forward, went, it went forward even through James's death as it did with Peter's freedom. Tertullian, um, the Christian defender of the faith who died in 225 A.D., uh, famously said to those persecuting him, uh, we multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. And so even with the evil acts of people in power, when they do evil acts like killing James, God is still able to accomplish his good purposes. Think about what Joseph said after being so wrongly done in the book of Genesis. His brothers who were in power selling him off in, the, in slavery, uh, being imprisoned wrongly by those in power. At the end of his life, he makes this statement in Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, God, uh, see guys, th this is how powerful God is. In fact, he is so powerful that he can use the most horrific evil ever committed. The killing of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And work through that to bring about the greatest good that has ever been done. Enabling the, the salvation of many people. Because do you know that this is who, who God is? Do you know that this is what he really is like? That this is how powerful he is? That this is how wise he is? And that this is how good he is? That he would willingly die for us when we didn't deserve it so that we could be saved, that we can be forgiven, that we can be reconciled to him? Like, this, guys, this is, what, this is who God is. He's all powerful. He's all wise. He's all good. He's all loving. Do, do you know that? That he has the power to thwart the evil intentions of people in power if he chooses that that's what's best to do, like he does with Peter. And he has the power to even work through the evil intentions of, of people in power to bring about good through them. If that's what he chooses to do, nothing can keep him 
from doing what he has set out to do. And what he has set out to do is good because he's good. Do you know that? Do you know that this is what God is like, that he's truly in power? Because there's so much hope, there's so much peace found in recognizing that this is who God is. And I desperately want you to have that hope and to have that peace. But here's the thing. This is one of those topics that it's, it's easy to, have, to know intellectually if, you've been, you know, if you're a Christian especially and you, you, know, you believe that God, the, the Bible is God's word. It's easy for you to know intellectually what the right answer is. Yes, I know God is the one who's ultimately in power. But, but sometimes we can fool ourselves with knowing the right answer, it, it, which is different than actually believing the right answer, right? And there's a difference between our, our intellectual knowledge and our functional knowledge. And so there's, it's worth examining, do, do I know this or do, do I really know this? Do I believe this? And the rest of this passage, it, it lays out, it gives us you know, two uh, ways to evaluate if we really do know, if we really do believe that God is the one in power. And these aren't the only ways to know, but there's two really helpful, practical ways to know if you know that God is truly in power. And, and, and the first one is this. The first is uh, if you earnestly pray. If you earnestly pray. See, what does the church do when King Herod arrests Peter? In verse 5, we're told, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for them. Now, earnest means uh, they were praying with sincerity and they were praying with intensity. It's kind of two, those two kind of ideas are, are captured in this word earnest, sincerity and an intensity. And so Peter is arrested and they turn directly to God to pray sincerely and intensely. And look then what we're told as you keep reading this passage, what the church was doing. So let me pick back up in verse 11. It says, then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And then verse 12 says, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had got, gathered and were praying, right? Praying. Now, don't miss this. This was the middle of the night, all right? Remember, the angel of the Lord came and woke Peter up in the middle of the night and all this thing, and he's stumbling around thinking he's in a dream. And so he's like, okay, now that he knows that this is real, he's thinking, where do I go? He goes to where he knew people had gathered together to pray. There were uh, around-the-clock prayer vigil, if you will, praying for Peter and his release. Now, why did they do that? Because they knew who was truly in power. Because the church knew who was truly in power. Though things looked dire, Peter was going to be killed the next day, just like James had been just a few days earlier. Their hope, their confidence was in God's power. And so they prayed. Now, one of the reasons I love Scripture is that, like, you just, it rarely paints God's followers as if they're perfect. And so, yeah, I mean, here are these people, and they're like, they're praying, and you're like, oh, man, what people of faith. They know who's truly in power, and they're praying all night long. But look, look what we're told happens next. They might not have been praying with a lot of faith. I just put it that way, because look, verse 13. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. And I love this. They say, you're out of your mind. 
All right? So we're all night long, we're praying that God would release Peter. When, when Rhoda says, hey, Peter is here, they say, you're out of your mind. There's no way that God has actually answered the prayers that we've been staying all night, up, uh, pr- all night long praying about. But that's what they say. You're out of your way. They're, you're out of your mind, they told her. And when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Like, he must have already died, and uh, now his angel's there. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were astonished. Like, no way, no way God actually answered this prayer. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he says, tell James. Now, another side bit here. This this is not the James who died. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Which, again, if you're exploring the Christian faith, I would really encourage you to chew on that. Like, what would your brother have to do to convince you that he's God? Whatever that is, Jesus did that for James. James now as a leader in the church believes that Jesus is the son of God. It's wild. So anyways, Peter says, tell James, tell the others, other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. I get a kick out of this whole, the whole comical scene. I mean, Peter's just out there. Like he, he, he got, gets him to escape prison, but he can't get into the prayer group. He's just stuck outside. He's waiting for them to open the door. It's really pretty awesome. It reminds me of a, um, an old story that pastors like to tell. The story goes that, a, uh, that in a small Texas town, a newcomer moved in into the town to open the very first bar, and the church was irate about it. They, they weren't having it. And so uh, the, the church calls together a, a, a prayer gathering, and they're praying that the, the, the bar would not open, that something would happen to it or whatever. It just wouldn't be able to open. The night before the, the bar was set to open, uh, the church is gathered in prayer again, and there's a lightning storm, and the lightning hits the bar and burns it to the ground. Now the bar owner is irate and just furious, and so he decides to sue the church and takes them to court. And so they're in court and, and pleading before the judge, and the church says, this is just completely ludicrous. Like, we were nowhere even close to the bar. We were gathered in the church praying. We had nothing to do with this. And the judge says this, I'm not sure how I'm going to rule here, but one thing is quite clear. The bar owner believes in the power of prayer, and the church doesn't. <laughs> I love that. Because on this night in Jerusalem, people gathered to pray, but they were astonished that God answered their prayer. And here's the thing, that one of the things we see here is it's not the amount of faith that we have that makes God move. It's the power that God has. And so, like, when we turn to him and pray, and we just have enough belief that, like, you're the one who's ultimately in power here. It's it's his power that changes things. It's not the power of our faith. It's his power. But he's certainly honored when we recognize he's truly the one in power, and we come to him in earnest prayer. Guys, don't miss this. If you're in the church, if you've been around the church, if you grew up in the church, it's just, it's, these are, this is one of those thoughts that um, shame, shamefully becomes common to us. Yes. God of the universe, who's all-powerful, hears our prayers. The God of the universe hears our prayers. Like We have access to him. When we talk, he listens, and he acts according to his good purposes. It's amazing. 
Friends, does your prayer life reveal that you truly believe that God is in power? That's one of the ways you'll know. You'll pray earnestly. Earnestly here, take that idea, so earnestly, sincerely, and intensely, sincerely. Like what you see them doing here is that they talk to God about what they were afraid of and what they wanted changed. That's what they were doing. God, please, please, free Peter somehow, some way, free our friend. Because when you look in the world and you see the brokenness of our world, and there's plenty of brokenness, do you respond with hopelessness? Do you respond with, okay, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get it done? Which there's nothing wrong with that because it's futile if God isn't the one who's behind it. Do you first hit your knees? Do you first pray? Does your prayer life reveal who you really believe is God, who's, who's in power? And then they pray sincerely and they pray intensely. Intensely is this idea that you see it like they were praying persistently, like they were praying all through the night. They were also gathered with others. That's another form of, of, of intense prayer. I know I pray better when I'm around people than when I'm just like in my own head. And so they would gather together as a church to pray all night with this persistent prayer. It's uh, interesting. And Luke uh, is uh, the author, like I said, of Acts. He's also the author of the Gospel of Acts. And, and I mean, sorry, the Gospel of Luke. And uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts kind of read like volume one and volume two. And what you see Jesus teach in the, in the Gospel of Luke, you see the church apply in the book of Acts. And one of the things that Jesus teaches repeatedly in the Gospel of Luke is the importance of persistent prayer. That in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 11 and Luke chapter 18, uh, Jesus highlights how important it is to come to God with persistence. With shameless audacity, is what he says in Luke 11, and, and with repetition. And then in Luke 18, it's, again, the idea of repetition, that we'd come to God persistent in prayer. And, guys, I don't know why that's a big deal to God. I don't know why persistence is such a big thing. But Jesus made it clear that it is. And so the, Luke, and so the, the, the church in Acts 12, they put it into practice. And they prayed all night. Guys, what about you? What about us as a church? Is there sincerity in our prayers? Is there, is there a sense of persistence in our prayers, intensity in our prayers? Are we praying earnestly? One of the things that our, our, the elders of our churches are, are praying about and, and, and asking God to do is actually increase uh, the, the, the prayerfulness of our church, that we would be more and more committed to prayer. That we would pray and, and leading us to spend more time with God, talking to him, being with him. And that we would join in praying and through prayer, partnering with God and what he's doing in the world. That we would pray as partners to join God and seeing the gospel advance in our lives and in our church and in our community, our city, our world. That uh, I love what uh, Samuel Chadwick says in his book, The Path of Prayer. He says, the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary people into people of power. It brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God. There's no power like that of prevailing prayer. So again, let me ask you, does your prayer life reveal a deep belief that God is truly the one in power?
If you believe that, you will pray. If you don't believe that, here's my encouragement. Pray and ask God to help you know who he is. As you come, become more convinced of who he is, that he is all-powerful, all-wise, all-good, you will pray. The second way to know if you're living in light of God's true power is if you reject pride. First, earnestly pray. Second, reject pride. And that's what you see the rest of this passage. See, because if you know, I say reject pride, because if you know that God is the ultimate authority, then that means you are not, right? And so you will humble yourself before him and live submissive and obedient lives for his glory, which is the opposite of what you see King Herod do in the rest of this passage. Let me just read it for you and see how it ends. Picking up in verse 18, it says this. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. That's an awesome understatement. No small commotion. I mean, they're freaking out. Uh, Verse 19. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. For in that day, if a prisoner escaped, the guards had to suffer the intended fate of the prisoner. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now, don't miss that. Like, Herod got out of there. Like, he was priding himself on the ability to persecute the church and to, to have Peter, one of the heads of the church, you know, beheaded. And now Peter has gone away, and now King Herod is humiliated, and so he runs away. He heads out of town. It says, then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been Uh, He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. And after securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. And so you got these two uh, coastal cities that come and try to get an audience with Herod because they were dependent on, on the, basically the, the breadbasket of the, of, of the non-coastal lands to send them food, and King Herod's upset with them, so he's hold, withholding food for these cities, using his power to, to oppress people. And uh, so they seek this time with him, and verse 21 says, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public ad- address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Vicious. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Okay, now I know that that sounds a little bit far-fetched, right? The whole eaten by worms and died uh, and this, this whole scene. But it's really interesting. Uh, Josephus, a uh, Roman Jewish historian of that day and age, an extra biblical, like outside of the Bible literature about the history of that time. Uh, you can Google it, and man, you don't have to do it right now, but you can. Uh, he, he writes about this. He writes about Herod, how he died in this scene, like where people came and, 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 and they gave him the praise of God and he didn't deny it. And then he got this terrible stomach pain. And then he goes and he, he goes back to his uh, uh, whatever place, palace, and just lies on the ground holding his stomach and, and, and dies a day later. Like it, this is like... This happened. Now, we, we don't need Josephus to verify this happened. We, the Bible we can trust, but it's, it's interesting. Like, this, this, this took place. You think, okay, that's wild. Well, guys, this shows us that uh, what God says about himself is, is true. That, as James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. 
God strikes her down and he dies. Because when we live in light of God's power, when we live in light of his authority, we will be moved to earnestly pray and we will be moved to reject pride. That unlike Herod, who used his power to win approval of mankind by opposing those weaker than him and making them serve him, those of us, when we're living in light of God's power, we will not have to seek approval from man. We will realize that God, in his great love for us, has approved us through his, person, through his son, Jesus. So we're not dependent on the praise of man. We can just live for the glory of God and the good of man freeing us to lead, not to be served by them, but to serve them. And in doing so, honor God. And even Jesus, God the Son, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Because when you are aware of God's authority, then it frees you to serve others, even when you're in leadership, especially when you're in leadership frees you to do it, and it moves you to do it because you know God is the authority, so I'm going to submit myself to him. He says, this is, this is how I should lead, by serving, not by being served, so I'm going to do it. And you reject pride, it leads to humility. Guys, do you see that building in your life? It's a trick question because you can't really say, yeah, I'm becoming more humble because then, you know, you give yourself away. You say, I got a lot of room to grow. But this is a part of the effect of knowing that God is the true power. That you're not, he is, therefore you humble yourself in his eyes to obey him and serve others. Um, as God gave us Acts 12 to help us recognize that no matter what man or woman is in a seat of power, whether as your boss or your prof or your president or anyone else, we can have hope. Even when things look bad, even when bad things are happening because God is the, is, uh, the one in ultimate power. He has the power to stop things from happening like he did with Peter. He has the power to take the evil things that people do and cause great good to come from them like he did with James. And so let who he is drive us to earnestly pray and to reject pride, to reject the idea that we know best, to reject the pride of thinking that we're in control, to reject the pride of trying to get people to serve us. Simply put, just to sum all this up, when we believe that God is truly in power, our outlook is affected, we can have consistent hope. Our activity is affected, we will be driven to earnest prayer. And our character is affected, it will lead to authentic humility. As all of those things come from living in light of who God is. And so I'm going to end the message by just taking a minute for us to reflect on who God is. And the best way to do that is through communion. So uh, the communion table is open uh, for anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't have to be a member or partner of this church, uh, but we just ask that, you, that what you're you know, taking here, you actually believe that really uh, is what God has done for you. And what, here's what communion uh, remembers. It remembers that God is so powerful that he defeated sin and death. And he did that and, and with, inc with incredible wisdom by sending his son to die in our place. Though we didn't deserve it, and he certainly didn't deserve having to die in our spot, he chose to. And in doing so, 
Payment was made for our sin and made a way for us to be reconciled to God through Christ. And the communion table, the bread that represents Christ's body broken for us and the blood, I mean the cup that represents Christ's blood spilled for us, also shouts, it declares like nothing else, the goodness and the love of God. That Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for us. That he willingly took our place as our substitute that we could be forgiven, that he would be condemned and we would be set free to be with God forever. Because this is who God is. He's all-powerful. He's all-wise. He's all-good. He's all-loving. This is who he is. Do you believe it? Ask that now, that during communion, you would just take a minute and wrestle with that. And if you believe it, say it again to God. And if you don't believe it, ask, pray to help, to help him. To help, ask him to help you believe who he really is. That we would live in light of it, leading us to earnestly pray and to reject pride. Let me pray, and then communion tables open to you at, at your own time, any time over the next three songs as we praise God together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth about who you are. God, it's so easy to forget and to just get caught up in the people that are in our lives and that uh, giving them too much power over how much hope we have. And, uh, Lord, even uh, when it's good, when, when we really like who's in power and we, so we have a lot of hope, or when it's bad and we really don't like who's in power, we have little hope. Like, uh, it's just, uh, would you help us remember and live in light of the truth that you're the one that's truly in power? And God, you can work all things out for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And Lord, in that is so much peace and so much hope. God, would you fill us with, the, with that hope as we lean into who you are? God, now as we take communion, would you just remind us that this truly is who you, who you are? And may, Lord, you lead us through it to be people of prayer and, uh, and humble people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.